Welcome to the legacy teachings of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Church since 1979. Though these teachings are decades old, we invite you to get out your Bible, take notes, and get ready to receive the uncompromised teaching of God's Word. For more information about Christian Assembly Church, please visit us online at cafamily.net. John's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 38. And Father, we approach your Word in the wonderful name of Jesus. We give you thanks for the Holy Ghost to be our teacher and guide to enlighten us and instruct us, enabling us to know the word of life. We expect to be quickened by your spirit according unto your word and to be changed from glory to glory. And I thank you for utterance in the Holy Ghost. And Father, for all that's achieved among us, we'll be quick to give you the praise, honor, and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're going to look first at John chapter 6 and verse 38. We've been talking about Jesus this month, the person of Jesus Christ. I can't think of a better subject to teach on. What about you? And we said that Jesus came to earth on a mission. You believe that? In other words, there was a reason for his coming. If there was a reason for his coming, then there was a work for him to fulfill. If there was a work for him to fulfill, then either he did or did not fulfill the purpose of his coming. It's important for us as believers to know what his mission was and to also determine whether or not he fulfilled it. Because, you see, whether or not he did affects us. Doesn't it? So if it affects us, then we should know about it. Amen? And... How we believe in this life then should be determined not by our circumstances, but by what Jesus did and by what His Word says. Amen? Amen? So, we first of all stated the fact that Jesus came for the purpose of seeking and saving that which was lost. And we expounded on that. And I'm glad He did. What about you? And He was successful. We then also talked about that he came to destroy the works of the devil. In 1 John 3, 8, it talks about, For this purpose was the Son of God, or Son of Man, manifest to destroy the works of the devil. And he did that. Aren't you glad that he did? I know I'm glad that he did. I was talking to somebody today who was magnifying and glorifying the devil. I sat and listened longer than I should, but I just couldn't take it any longer. I said, why are you pleased with glorifying the devil? And she said to me, what? I said, why are you glorifying the devil? Because he's destroying everybody's life. She kept on saying, because he's doing this and because he's doing that and these people are messed up and that person's messed up and this and that and all this and all the other. I said, what about Jesus? She said, well, what about him? I said, well, the Bible tells me he destroyed the works of the devil. Yeah, but you don't understand I said, I think you don't understand. He came to undo, outdo, and overdo all the works of the devil. Now, see, in her mind, he didn't do that. But in my mind, he did. What about in your mind? What about in your mind? He did, didn't he? He did destroy the works of the devil. I said, stop glorifying the devil and start glorifying God. I said, "It'll, it'll make you feel better. Amen. Well, then we said also that in John 10.10, Jesus came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. And it's not just talking about life as we know it or life as we have it in the flesh. That word there for life is in the Greek zoe, and it means life as God has it, absolute life. In other words, there's not one trace of anything that is contrary to the life of God in it. If that doesn't make you jump out of your seat, nothing will. You got the life of God in you. You understand that? I tell you, if we really understood that, we'd be running around this place shouting and just just taking off to the moon. Just getting raptured right on out of here. I'm going to say it again. You have got the absolute life of God in you. And you are a new species that never before existed on the earth. Not even Adam was as, as, as well off as you are. Inwardly, in your spirit. Because you see, that word there over in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, new creation. It means a new species that never before existed. 
See, the first Adam, we know, failed God, but the second Adam didn't. And if we all died in the first Adam spiritually, thank God we've all been made alive in the second. And what God did in Jesus is far superior to what Satan did in Adam. So the life you got in you is the God kind of life, the Zoe life of God. Amen? And it's life as God has it. And it's inside you right now. But God said, don't hide it under a bushel. What's the bushel? Our senses and our reasonings. Act as a bushel to cover the light. The Zoe life of God is on the inside of us. God wants to get it on the outside. I've got something on the inside. It's to be working on the outside. Amen? Amen. Amen. Can you see that? That's how God wants it to be. He wants this flesh of ours to be swallowed up of the life of God, Zoe life. And Paul said, for that reason, he died daily. He died to the flesh daily. He died to human passions to live to do the will of God. Now that brings us to another thought. In John's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 38, if you want to know how to get the life of God that's on the inside of you to the outside, this is how we do it. In John 6, 38, Jesus said, now we're talking about Jesus. He's our subject. We're talking about Him. Jesus said in John 6, 36, or 38 rather, for I came down from heaven. We're talking about why He came. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came that we might have life and have it more abundantly, didn't he? Now notice this. I am come down from heaven not to do mine own will. Notice. But the will of him that sent me. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, not to do his own will. That's why he came. You see, as a human being, he had his own will. He could choose to do what he wanted to do. But he made a choice, he made a decision to do the Father's will and to set aside his own will. If you recall, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was there struggling in prayer, if you recall that incident, what did he say? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Thine will be done. See, God's will is not being done on the earth like it should. God's will is not at work in the earth like He wants it to be. That's why Jesus prayed or or told His disciples when He taught them how to pray, Pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is gloriously being done in heaven. There's no problems in heaven. There's no difficulties in heaven. There's no decisions that have to be made between good and evil in heaven. They've already been made, praise God. And everything up there is fine and dandy. See? But it's here on the earth that we have the problem. When God made man, He made him a free will agent. He gave him one of the greatest of all gifts that separates and distinguishes man from all other creative beings. And that is free will. What a powerful gift. What a potent gift. You see, but the problem was this. Man could use that will to rebel against God, and God knew it. And so from the very beginning, he had to give him a period of time called a testing period to determine what he would do on earth with his will, with his free will agency. And how many of you know that Adam failed the test? He didn't pass the course, did he? He decided to just to do it his own way. Amen. And as a result of doing it his own way, he failed God. He did not do the will of God. He did not obey Him and fulfill His will in love. He refused to do that because of, of course, the devil's suggestion. But still he made a decision on his own, didn't he? So even though it might be a precious and a powerful gift, it's also a dangerous gift that God has given us. He does not want us to be robots. He wants us to love Him willfully, to serve Him willfully, to seek His plan and purpose for our lives and then set out to fulfill it and do it just like Jesus did. So Jesus did not come to satisfy His own will. He came to do the will of the Father God. He chose to set His love upon Him. He chose to honor Him in this life. He chose to please Him with all 
that he set his heart to do. I'd like to say it this way. Jesus did what no man ever did before on this earth. And you know what that was? Perfectly please the Father God. And bring comfort and joy to his heart. No one else ever did that. I said perfectly. No one ever perfectly pleased the Father God like Jesus did. Jesus came to please the Father. And if we want to put ourselves in a position to know God better and be more intimately acquainted with Him and to learn how to get the life of God that's on the inside of us to the outside of us, we have to make that same quality decision that Jesus did. I'm here not to do mine own will, but the will of my Father God. You see, sometimes when we go into praying about certain things, you know, pertaining to our lives, we first of all forget to consecrate ourselves to the will of the Father God. We want this to happen for ourselves. We want that to happen for ourselves and that sort of thing. But, you see, first and foremost, we're supposed to seek the face of God and say, Father God, not my will, but thine be done. It's not what I want. It's what you want for my life. How can I best serve you? How can I best please you? How can I best work for you upon this earth and co-labor with you? See, give me direction for my life. That's why Jesus came. Someone had to please the Father perfectly. And Jesus chose to do so. As a matter of fact, God was so pleased with the life of His Son, Jesus, He publicly announced that Jesus was His Son, and He publicly announced that Jesus pleased Him. Did you ever read that in Matthew chapter 3? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Somebody on earth had to perfectly please the Father God. And that person was Jesus. Aren't you glad He came? Aren't you glad He perfectly pleased the Father God? I am. Now I'm going to make another statement that's a bold one. I pray you'll understand it. When He pleased the Father, He pleased Him not just for Himself. He pleased Him for all of us. I'm going to say that again. He pleased Him for all of us. The Bible says that you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Do you know that? You know what that means? God sees you in Christ. Christ lived a perfect life that perfectly pleased the Father God. And because you are in Christ, you are perfectly pleasing to the Father God also. Did you know that? Can you see that? So often we're trying to scurry about and gather up some self-worth, self-esteem. But I want you to know that all your worth is in the person of Jesus Christ. You are in Him. And because you are in Him, you perfectly please the Father with your life. That's pretty good. There's nothing that you can do in the flesh. Can you see that? There's no work that you can do that can make you right with God. It's because of who you are in Christ that God is pleased with you. And I want to show you that. Look at John's Gospel, chapter 17. I want us to understand that we can believe God for big things all because of Jesus, not because of who we are. We can expect God to manifest Himself in our life in a glorious way, not because of who we are, but because we know who Jesus is. I want us to get our attention off of self and totally put our attention on Jesus. And if we'll do that, it'll make a big difference in our faith lives. You'll begin to see that it's not because you have so much, but it's because He has so much that you can dare believe God. It's not because you've done so much with your life. It's because He's done so much with His life that you can dare believe God. It's not because you're so successful. It's because He's so successful, you see, that you can please God with your life. I want us to begin to see that we are all in Christ. And everything that we have is in Him. 
The way the Father views us and sees us is because we're cleansed by His blood. And we're part of the family. And that has nothing to do with anything that we did. It has everything to do with what Jesus did. And it affects us because we believe in Jesus. In John 17 and verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now, some people, when they read that, they think that's talking about the completed work of redemption. But at this point, redemption was not completed. Jesus still didn't die. He wasn't raised from the dead yet. You see, there are different phases to the work of Christ that we want to understand. And that first phase involves what He did on the earth. Another phase involves what He did in redemption. But sometimes, you know, if we're not careful, we overlook the phase of what He did on the earth and only look to the work of redemption. And as a result of doing that, sometimes we fail to see just how precious the life of Jesus was when He walked upon this earth. He said, I have glorified thee on the earth. Can you see that? In other words, I have brought glory to you while I walked on this earth. While I lived on this earth for those 33 and a half years, I glorified you on earth. You know, God was looking for man to glorify him on earth from the very beginning. But Adam failed and didn't do it. And he longed for the day when someone would glorify him on this earth and demonstrate and prove his love for the Father. Jesus came to do that. And Jesus did that very thing. He publicly glorified the Father everywhere he went. I want you to turn with me, if you would please, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. And I want you to remember as we look over these verses of Scripture that Jesus came as the Son of Abraham, not only the Son of the living God. He came as the second Adam and not just the Son that was given. There are two sides to the life of Christ that have got to be understood. And of course, one side is the side of deity, but also there is a side to His humanity that must be understood by the believer today. Because, you see, if we don't understand that side of it, then we'll fail to recognize all that He did on earth to glorify the Father God when He lived His life. Jesus came as the son of Abraham, and He was here on a mission. There were certain things that He had to do to bring honor and glory to the Father and He did those things, and if we'll understand them, beloved, it'll enable us to know how, because Jesus was successful, we also can be successful in glorifying the Father God as we believe in all that Jesus did. In Matthew's Gospel, I want you to look, if you would please, at verse 17, chapter 5 and verse 17. Jesus makes another bold statement with reference to his reason for coming to the earth. He says here, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. What a statement. At the time that Jesus was born... There were only two groups of people existing on the earth. You say, I know there were more nations than that. I didn't say nations. I said groups. There was the Jew and the non-Jew. Or there was the Jewish person or what is termed the Gentile person. Two groups 
of people upon the earth. And to be frank about it, neither group could please God totally with their lives. Neither group could be born again apart from Jesus coming and dying and being resurrected from the dead. Now, the Jewish person was considered one who had a covenant with God through Father Abraham. Abraham cut the covenant with God. The Israeli nation was birthed. And then many years later, after the covenant, came the Mosaic Law with all of its ordinances and all of its laws. As a result of sin and willful disobedience... God had to show the people how they were indebted to Him. He had to show them how they could not live a life that would please Him on this earth. And so they were given the law and the commandments that were to be kept by them. That law exposed their weakness, their failure, and their inability to please God. But God still needed a line to bring the Redeemer into the world. And so He raised up this nation of people so that He could bring the Messiah to the earth. Now, even though they thought they were totally right with God, and they were it. I mean, they were the religious people of the day, and that was all there was to it. They had a hold on God that no one else could have. They were sorely wrong. Because they failed to continue to follow what God designed for them as a nation and as a people. Keep the thought in mind that there wasn't anyone on earth who could possibly fulfill the law and possibly satisfy the claims of the law or the covenant that God had made. There was no one alive, whether Jew or Gentile, that could possibly pay back his indebtedness to God. That was an impossibility. I want you to look at the condition of the Gentile. Look at Ephesians, if you would please, in chapter 2. The Gentile person, anyone who was a non-Jew... Now, you can become a Jewish proselyte, that's for sure. You know, you could get into the Jewish faith and religion if you would become a proselyte and convert over to Judaism. But many of them didn't want to observe all those laws and rituals and keep all those commandments. And so they just, you know, said, forget about that. I'll just go on doing the thing that I want to do. Satisfy my lustful desires and fulfill all them and do what I want to do. I'll believe in the God I want to believe in. And so this was the condition of the Gentile on the earth. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, Wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. And all that is saying is this. There are Jews and non-Jews. Jews are circumcised and non-Jews are not circumcised. They're uncircumcised. So uncircumcised and circumcised are two different groups Upon the earth, the Jew and the non-Jew, or the Gentile. You recall in the beginning when God made the covenant with Abraham, how they were told that each male child had to be circumcised and all that, which was a part of their being in the covenant with God. But here is the Gentile, the uncircumcised one. Now listen, verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, you were strangers from the covenants of promise, and you had no hope, and you were without God in the world. That was the condition of the Gentile. You know, people today believe in a universal God. Forget about that. The Bible makes it very clear. Anyone who is outside of the Abrahamic covenant, even back then, was called somebody who was without God. Oh, they had gods, but they didn't have God. Can you see that? And so now we see here, we have two groups of people. We have the Jew and we have the non-Jew. The Gentile is without hope and without God. Strangers alienated from the life of God, estranged from the life of God, and had no way to God at all. So they couldn't please God with their lives, and there was not one found among them that could possibly satisfy the claims that were being held against mankind, was there? Not one person. And what about the Jew? Now, the Jew had a covenant with God. 
and they had a way to God, but there was something standing between them and God, and that's why there was a veil between the holy place and the holies of holies. It symbolized that man still could not enter into the presence of God even under that covenant, save the high priest, and that with a sacrificial lamb and the blood of the lamb, and you know all the story from there. So it still signified that the way into the holiest place was still not made open to mankind. Let's read on. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man. In other words, of the two groups, he was going to make one new man and make peace. The Jewish and the non-Jewish person in Christ was going to become a new man or a new species that never before existed on the face of the earth. And that was God's intention. And that's why Jesus came. And that He might reconcile both unto God, both Jew and Gentile, in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh, for through Him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit unto the Father. So that was the condition of those that were outside of the Abrahamic covenant. They were without hope and they were without God in the world. Also, the Jew, although they had a covenant with God, still the average Jew could not enter into the presence of God and the average Jew could not satisfy the claims of justice that were being held against mankind since the fall of Adam from the very beginning. And so they were really both in a situation where they needed help from God. And God had a plan. And, of course, it involved His Son. You see, first of all, Jesus had to come as the Jewish Messiah. He had to come in human form, but He couldn't come out of any other nation. He had to come as a Jew. He had to be a Hebrew. He had to be a member of the Abrahamic Covenant. Why? Because somebody through that line had to finish the work of a Hebrew son. Somebody had to fulfill the law and the commandments. Somebody had to live a life on this earth that would please God so much that that one person could take the Jew and the Gentile, bring them together, and make them a new creation in the sight of God. One person had to do that. There wasn't one found in the camp of the Gentiles. And up until the birth of Christ, there was not one found in the camp of the Israelites. But you know what? I recall a wonderful day recorded in human history. The day that Jesus Christ was born. In a manger. In Bethlehem. In the city of David. I recall how the angels just began to tell the people, the shepherds, that unto you a child is born, a son is given, the Messiah has come. The mission of God and the work of God is about to begin. And it's all going to unfold in the life of this God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ. The first Adam was a failure, but the second Adam would succeed. He must be born as the Scriptures teach. He must fulfill every jot and tittle of the law. He must obey God perfectly with his life, and then he must do something about taking what God had written, the bill, I guess you could say, the indebtedness of man to God, take that and nail it to his cross and make peace between God, Jew, and Gentile. He had to do this. Somebody on earth had to walk a perfect walk and live a perfect life and do everything that the Father wanted him to do. Up until this point, no one ever did it. He came to give both Jew and Gentile access to the Father God. He came to glorify the Father on this earth. 
I want you to turn with me, if you would please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. There's not a whole lot said about the life of Jesus as he was growing up, other than that he was obedient to his parents and that he also waxed strong in spirit and grew in wisdom and in stature. You can read that there in Luke. We know that he grew up as a, an individual human being. He was taught out of the law, out of the book, out of the scriptures. He learned about the Jewish customs and the laws and the ordinances of God. And he began to fulfill what the Father instructed for him to do and fulfill when he lived upon this earth. He had to be a, a Hebrew under the Abrahamic covenant and he had to glorify God and defeat Satan and stand against all the circumstances of life. The first Adam had his encounter with Satan and he utterly failed God. This second Adam was our hope of glory. And if man was going to be reunited with his creator, it would have to be in the person of this one who came as an infant, who was the God-man, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Emmanuel, God who was with us. God manifest in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And without Him was not made anything that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And He came to unveil to us the very heart of the Father God. He came to please the Father in every way. Not to do His own will, but to be totally sold out to live His life to please God Almighty. And as He began His earth walk, He was on a mission. He knew that he would first of all have to fulfill the law with all of its ordinances. He would have to satisfy every claim of the law and every claim of the covenant that God made with Abraham. He would also face a fierce enemy who would stand against his every attempt to do the will of God. Does that ring a bell with you? You have an enemy out there today who does not want you to succeed in God? And fulfill His will for your life? Who wants to cause setbacks in your life to get you off track and distracted and walk away from what God would have you to do? To make you think that just because something didn't go right the first time that you might as well just quit and be a failure? I want you to know that Jesus in the days of His flesh suffered those things we suffer too. And He was bombarded with all kinds of opposition to try to get Him to fail. And beloved, in that wilderness, in Matthew chapter 4, in that wilderness, it was a place where he knew he would have to meet the adversary just as the first Adam did in the beginning. Here we see the scene. Jesus just got baptized by John. He identified himself with the Abrahamic covenant and the Jewish people. He was obedient to do the will of God up to that point. At that point of his baptism, the Spirit of God came upon him, anointing him as a prophet, priest, and king under the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus left behind his mighty power and his glory and came to this earth as a man. The God-man, yes, but still as a man. And I want us to emphasize that tonight. A man had to please God. A man had to defeat the devil. A man had to rule the earth. A man had to overcome circumstances. And Jesus came to fulfill that work of the Father God. And on this earth, after he was baptized in water and filled with the Holy Ghost, Jesus then was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted, tested, and tried by the devil himself. And I want you to know, beloved that this was a direct attack of Satan himself. This was not one of his assistants. We are talking about the devil himself. The devil himself would go to Jesus and the devil would attempt to get Jesus to bow his knee the same way he got Adam to bow his knee. And you know what, beloved? He's trying to get us to bow our knees today, too. Can I tell you something? 
It's not you that defeats the devil. Jesus already did. And the more you think he's doing things to you, and the more you think you've got to do something about it, the more you're going to be defeated. It's when you start saying, look, I've had enough of you and your ugly face. As far as I'm concerned, you are whipped. Jesus defeated you, and I am in him. Therefore, get thee behind me, Satan. That's all you've got to tell him. But you see, if we don't see that Jesus did all this, then we think we're out there on our own. He did all this for every single one of us here tonight. And that's why I want us to see it. You read these verses in Matthew 4, and you'll discover, verses 1 through 11, you will discover that Satan came to attack Jesus in every realm of life, spirit, soul, and body. Let's read. Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. You know what I like about that? Since Jesus fasted 40 days and nights, I don't have to. Because I'm in Him. And He did it for me. Can you say amen? Someone says, for me to be spiritually strong, I've got to fast 40 days and 40 nights. Yeah, and then pass out. When the devil comes and just blows on you. That'll make me spiritual. No, it won't. Jesus fasted for you. So eat. And believe. You can do more by eating and believing than fasting and doubting. Did you get that? You can. Now, if you want to just lay off a few meals just to get a hold of your spirituality, that's okay. But if you think you're going to just go on a 40-day fast, that's going to make you the spiritual giant that you want to be, forget about it. Now, I want you to see that you're in Christ. Jesus did this for you. See, you're no match for the devil, but he was. Okay? And so all we do is just resist him in Jesus' name. You know why you resist him in Jesus' name? Because Jesus defeated him, not you. So I just sit back and laugh because, you know, here he is thinking he's going to get me. See, we can sit back and laugh and say, ha ha on you. Jesus defeated you. I'm not even going to give you the time of day. I resist you. Get behind me. Amen. Okay? So Satan comes along. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, the devil come up to you and say, If you think you're a child of God, do this. Do that. See, that's what he did to Jesus. If you be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered, but he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. I want you to notice something here, beloved. Jesus whipped the devil with the word. He whipped the devil with the word. People today want to whip the devil with all kind of gyrations and all kind of rituals. And all kinds of wild craziness. They would have to go through all that if they realized it is written. Did you hear that? Everybody say with me, it is written. Satan's been defeated. And it's written. That settles the issue right there. Jesus defeated him in the physical realm. Bread. In other words, you're hungry. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And you know that is written, isn't it? That's written. But you know what? You're going to like this. You don't believe the Word of God by circumstances. In other words... If you really believe that, then this will happen. And if it doesn't happen, I guess God lied. Wrong. No. I'm not going to jump because it's true already. I don't have to prove it's true by jumping. It's true already. Can you see that? The Word is not based on our circumstance. The Word is the Word and it's true. Regardless of anything else. And that's why Jesus said... In response, it is written again. The devil tried to now attack him in the mental realm. 
the soulish realm. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Notice he had the right word for the right occasion. And again, the devil takes him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth them all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. That's the spiritual realm. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written. Don't you just love the way Jesus just quoted the word? He, as the Son of God, as a son of Abraham... In other words, an anointed one under the Abrahamic covenant took the word that was spoken and written and just used it to put the devil to flight. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve, then the devil leaveth him. And behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Here we see Jesus facing the devil himself like Adam, yet unlike Adam, he was successful. Because he did not deviate from the Scripture. Adam did. Eve did. See, in, in the soulish realm, they were deluded and deceived. But Jesus took the Word for what it said, and He used it. Beloved, every single one of us defeats the devil and pleases God in this life through Jesus by using the Word of God. And God wants us to drive that home into our hearts and minds. It is written and take a stand and I mean a bold stand just like Jesus did did you see Jesus calling for a legion of angels to come on and help him oh God if you would just send all these powers from above that I'd be able to, over, to withstand and overcome this fierce attack of the enemy it's such a ferocious thing you know coming against me and I'm hungry you know I'm starving Beloved, even in that state of physical weakness from hunger, because he wasn't hungered, the Bible says. He just said, it's written. And so here's one aspect of Jesus pleasing the Father and glorifying him on the earth. Look at chapter 4 and uh, verse 23. Let's start with verse 23. And from that time on, Jesus set out to glorify the Father with His life on the earth. No man ever did this before. No human ever did this before. No one under the Abrahamic covenant ever did this before. I know Enoch walked with God. I understand that. But no one ever did what Jesus did on this earth. Now here it is. Jesus went about from that place, all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. In other words, here's another example. Jesus lived a life that perfectly glorified the Father on earth. If you'll read many occasions where people were delivered and set free, the Bible says, and they glorified God after the person was healed. Isn't that true? Here, Satan comes with every form of sickness and disease. All these people with all these diseases, all these people bound up by demon spirits, lunatics, people that had mental problems, that were demon-possessed people, and they all come. And is Jesus successful? You, you, you believe He is. He indeed is successful. He stands right there in the face of all that and delivers all the people that are there, perfectly pleasing the Father with His life. They're coming from every direction now. They hear about his fame. He sets out to get away sometimes from the crowd, and his journey takes him across the sea. He gets out there on the water, and all of a sudden there is a storm. He's sleeping in the back part of the ship because he, he needs some rest. And all of a sudden, his disciples are, are frantic. They're panicking because they're going to die. They're going to drown. And they wake him up and say, Don't you care that we perish? And here he is once again, a man on the earth that rises up, stands against even the very laws of nature and rebukes the wind, rebukes the sea, and the waters come to a calm, the winds begin to cease, and they marvel at what he did and said, even the wind and the sea obey him. What manner of man is this? This is a man 
who took the place of the first Adam, who demonstrated to all mankind forever and ever, and it will be throughout all eternity, that he had dominion in every realm and sphere of life. Here is someone who demonstrated the ability that God gave Adam from the very beginning and the dominion that was his from the very beginning, from the outset, when he made him the king of all the earth and gave him dominion over all the works of his hands. He stood in the face of, of lack and want. When the people had no food to eat, he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. He overrode the law of supply and demand. I mean, it goes on and on. The things that he did, men marveled at. And beloved, we don't know the half of what Jesus did when he was on this earth. The Bible says if the books were written, the world could not contain the books and the statements that should be made of what that man did when he walked upon the face of the earth. Can you imagine that? Let your mind run wild for a while and think about those things that Jesus did. And turn with me while you're thinking to John's Gospel and chapter 11. Jesus cast out devils. He met the needs of His disciples when they had to pay their taxes. He knew where there was money in the bottom of the sea. He sent a fish to go out there and get a hold of some of it and bring it back. Peter went in, got the money out of the fish's mouth and paid his taxes, gave unto Caesar what is Caesar's. No matter what the need was, no matter what the situation was, no matter what the circumstance was, Jesus overcame it. It pleased the Father God. When they took up stones, they stoned Him to death. Because of the claims that He made about Himself, He walked right out of the midst of them and they could not touch Him. They were paralyzed because of the glory and power of God that emanated from His person. We're talking about a man on earth that perfectly pleased God. No matter who came to him. There was a leper that came to him beseeching him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Jesus put forth his hand in compassion and said, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. There was a centurion that went to him and said, My servant lies home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. And he says, I'm not worthy. You come out of my ribs. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. And his servant was healed in the same hour because of what he had believed. There was a Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was child, or her child was at home sick, sick, tormented by the devil in a terrible way. It didn't matter what it was. They brought the lame, the halt, the maimed, the blind, those that didn't have eyeballs in their sockets. Was it too difficult for him? He perfectly pleased the Father. He glorified God on earth. There was a man who never walked from his mother's womb. Jesus made him every whole and said, Go, be on your way, take up your bed. He met everything. Every demand, every claim, no matter what it was, no matter what the circumstance was, he overcame it. And beloved, here is the epitome of his glorifying God on earth as far as human thinking is concerned. In John chapter 11, Lazarus just died, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth on me shall never die. Believest thou this? I want you to see the scene. I want you to know what's going on in the heart and mind of Jesus and also how God the Father is looking down from the banisters of heaven and He's looking over and He's looking to see what's taking place when Jesus stands there before the crowd of unbelievers, the Jews that were to receive Him who rejected Him. And he stood there before the grave in the tomb of Lazarus. What is more difficult to overcome than death itself? God is not the author of death. Death is an enemy of both God and man. And here is the acid test before all these leaders, these religious leaders. This is it right here. And they gathered around to see what he was going to do. I mean, what's this lunatic going to do right now? They thought he was crazy. Verse 39, Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? He came to glorify God on the earth. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, because, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast 
sent me. You have a problem tonight? Lazarus had a problem. He was dead. <laughs> Graveyard dead. Tomb stone dead. Embalmed, decaying, stinketh dead. He was dead. Now, if the scriptures unveil to us truth, then we know he was in Abraham's bosom. A compartment beneath the earth where his spirit and soul were, while his body was left on the earth, and by this time starting to decay. The man has a problem. Right? And I guarantee you there wasn't any deodorant made that was going to help him out. Any antiperspirant whatsoever. I mean, he, this man was dead and he stinketh. That was it. Now, Jesus, yes, he was a friend of Jesus. And Jesus cared for the family. But Jesus also was on a mission to glorify God on the earth. And he wanted all the people that were there, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of the day, to know that God had sent him. Some people say he should have been more clear. Oh, really? When have you ever stood by the graveside of somebody and witnessed someone else saying, come forth? When have you ever watched someone raise someone from the dead? Man, if you didn't believe after that, there's something wrong upstairs. He stood there, and when he had thus spoken, with the, he, he cried with a loud voice. He had a holler because Lazarus was in that compartment beneath the earth. He was probably taking an afternoon nap, kind of resting over there in Abraham's bosom. And so he shouts out these words. I mean, you can only envision this. You can only see it, I'm sure, in the spiritual sense, but can you imagine... How the caverns of the damned shook when Jesus echoed out, Lazarus, come forth. Can you imagine if you can just see that beneath the earth? If those caverns. I mean, even in Hades itself, there's only a compartment, a gulf fixed between the two. Can you imagine how that voice of authority rang throughout those regions? And Abraham just probably said, He's talking to you. I mean to tell you that Jesus called for him. And when his spirit went back into that decayed body, a miracle took place. First of all, his body was made whole once again. And it stood upright, unable to walk, of course. He's all wrapped up and mounted. He couldn't get himself free. He's mummified. And there he stands. And Jesus looks around and says, loose him and let him go. Let him go free. Now look what these people did. Verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him, but some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. If you were there, would you want to believe you'd be a believer at that point? Would you? But you see, the point I want to make, beloved, is he demonstrated on earth that death was no match for him. Not because he was the son of God, but because he was the son of Abraham, anointed by God, sent from above to carry out a mission to overcome Satan, death, hell, and the grave. Someone had to perfectly please the Father on this earth with his life, beloved. And you know what? Jesus did that. And you can read throughout all the, the Gospels and you'll find out that everything that Jesus did perfectly pleased the Father and demonstrated that He had to come from above. Now, that wasn't the end of it. See, sometimes we think, well, that's, that's it. I want you to turn with me, if you would, please, to the book of Colossians in chapter 2. There is the side of the Hebrew son that Jesus had to fulfill. When God gave the Mosaic law with the Levitical priesthood with all the laws and commandments and ordinances, really, it was like a handwriting of God stating that you can't please me with your life. You can't satisfy me. You will never, never gain entrance into my kingdom on your own. You ever get a bill in the mail? How many of you ever got a bill in the mail? Did you ever get one in the mail? 
one today. You're blessed. <laughs> and, you know, there's a list of all these things you purchased. And sure enough, your signature is at the bottom. You signed it, didn't you? See, you shouldn't have signed for that, but you did. But in other words, all these things that you, you know, wrote down, that that's written down there, you purchased. And so now you are indebted to pay for your purchases. Well, I want you to know that when Adam sinned against God, he became indebted to God. And God did his best to make it very clear. And so he wrote out a bill, that, a statement that says, you owe me big time. And because of that statement, neither Jew nor Gentile had any access to God. He made it clear to the Jew because, you see, he was working through the Jewish people. And he wrote it out. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not have any false gods. And, and et cetera, et cetera. All that is written out. It, it made them know they couldn't keep it. They couldn't satisfy him. We owe him. And there's no possible way that we could do what he wants us to do. We can't please him with our lives. The Gentile was without hope and without God in the world. Period. But every single one of us had the handwriting of God written on the wall or in a statement against every single one of us telling us there's no hope, there's no way. This is what you owe me. You rebelled, you committed high treason, and it's sealed and signed by the government of heaven. You can't escape death unless you pay the price. And it was signed and sealed. Sealed and notarized by the government of heaven. You owe me. Somebody had to satisfy those claims. Somebody had to do something about the handwriting of ordinances that was against every single one of us. And you know what? Every one of our names was listed on that statement. Every single one of us. I want you to see something here in Colossians chapter 2. I believe it will be a blessing to you. I want you to begin looking at verse 13. I'm going to read it from the Amplified as well. Colossians 2 and 13. And you who were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, your sensuality, your sinful carnal nature, God brought to life together with Christ, having freely forgiven us, all of our transgressions. Now listen carefully. Having canceled and blotted out and wiped away the handwriting of the note or the bond with its legal decrees and demands, which was in force and stood against us, hostile to us. This note with its regulations, decrees, and demands, he set aside and cleared completely out of our way by nailing it to his cross. I want you to listen carefully. The handwriting in the Greek is referring to a statement of debt. In other words, God established this statement of debt. And it was notarized by the government of heaven. And in those laws and ordinances of God, every single one of us is indebted to God. And none of us can fulfill the work of God to be free from the debt. So that the handwriting of ordinances or the statement of indebtedness that was being held against all of us could possibly be dealt with through someone. Apart from that occurring, beloved, we would all be under guilt and debt. Didn't matter who we are. I want you to look at First Peter chapter 3 also. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. And I'm going to read that from the Amplified also. The writing stated not only our guilt, but it cried out for a penalty to be paid as a result of our debt. It cried out for judgment. Can you see that? It says, you owe me, 
be free until you pay me. That's what Adam did to us, beloved. And therefore, no one could be free. Everybody was indebted to God. Every single one of us had a statement of guilt. And justice, as far as God was concerned, could only come through a, through a Savior or a Redeemer because man couldn't do it for himself. And the demands of justice, as far as heaven was concerned, had to be met. God could not pardon just because He loved us. It had to be a legal act because it was a legal decree. It was a legal ordinance. It had to be handled on a legal basis. It could not just happen by somebody being good or doing good works or becoming religious. It could only happen if somebody would pay the price of our guilt. In 1 Peter 3 and 18, For Christ the Messiah Himself died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, listen, the just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty, that He might bring us to God. In His human body, He was put to death, but He was made alive in the Spirit. The innocent one died for the guilty one so that the guilty one could be innocent. The righteous one died for the unrighteous one so the unrighteous one could become righteous. The sinless one became sin for us who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. And I want you to see this clearly. On that tree... The Bible says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We only see the natural part or the physical side of this. We see the nails going through His hands and through His feet and the imprint of His side and the, and the crown of thorns as His head was pierced. But listen carefully, beloved. If you could see it in the spiritual realm, God was laying upon Him the guilt of us all. When he was hung on that tree, God himself took the ordinances or the statement of guilt and the statement of debt that was being held against us, took it and nailed it to the cross with Jesus. Jesus, because of his perfect life, because of perfectly pleasing the Father as a human being on this earth, and now as a sinless, spotless substitute, goes to that cross, and God and the complete government of heaven that was holding this note, this statement of guilt against all mankind, officially takes it and nails it to the cross. On that tree, then, Jesus Christ, as our substitute, becomes our sin, who knew no sin. The sin of the world, the guilt of the world, the unrighteousness of the world, all now goes to Him on that tree. All of it. And there He is. Go on back to Ephesians chapter 2. At that time, we were without Christ. In verse 12, we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers and from the covenants of promise. We had no hope and without God in the world. We were devastated. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. He is our peace who has made both one. He has broken down the middle wall between us. He took that middle wall and he broke it down. He abolished in his flesh the enmity, the law of the commandments contained in ordinances. Beloved, here's what I want us to see. Someone lived the perfect life. Someone kept the Ten Commandments. Someone observed every law of God. Someone satisfied every claim of the law and someone satisfied every claim of the covenant. 
someone perfectly did all the work that was expected from the government of heaven, from the supreme court of the universe to be satisfied. That person was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, in doing so, breaks the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. There's no more Jew. There's no more Greek. There's no more bond. There's no more free. There's no more male. There's no more female. Thank you for listening to our legacy teachings. We pray today's message has a profound impact upon your life and your ministry. I want you to know that God loves you, has a great plan for your life. But if you've never made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life, I'd like to invite you to do that right now. Just pray this simple prayer right after me. Just say, Heavenly Father, I come to you just as I am. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus died for my sins and was raised from the dead for me. I open the door of my heart. I call upon the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, come into my heart now. I receive you and accept you as my personal Savior and Lord. If you prayed that prayer with me, you're a child of God right now, and I encourage you to get into a good Bible-based church where you can learn to grow in your Christian faith and experience. God bless.